0: We're looking at biblical stories where good and grief intersect. And as we do so, we pay special attention when we find tears on Jesus' cheeks. We find tears on the face of God. Those tears on Jesus' cheek are windows through which we can see into the heart of God. Uh, We find tears on Jesus' cheeks several times during the same week, um, when he raised Lazarus from the dead, we looked at that a couple of weeks ago just to refresh our minds a little bit. Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled when he comes to Lazarus' death and the tomb. And what we saw is that the word deeply moved literally means the snorting of horses. It's a strange thing to be associated with tears. He is pawing the ground, getting ready to charge. Um, The word troubled means stirred up and churned up, agitated like a storm at sea or like a washing machine during the agitator cycle. And, again, it's not just about grief and pain. There is an edge to why Jesus cries when he's at the tomb of Lazarus. His emotions are very complex. Um, The violent tyranny of death stands before his eyes and he has come to deal with that, and he snorts and paws the ground emotionally, he will need this anger to get to the cross. It will fuel strength on our behalf. It's not just love, but there is an anger here, a righteous anger, a pure focused anger that he will deal with death in such a way that it will open the door into eternal existence for everyone who believes in him. And as well, there's anger, but there is grief as well. His agitation isn't limited to his confrontation with death. There are people that he cares about. There's Mary and Martha. There's the people. And he sees their weeping. And Jesus, what we'll see, is identified with the purposes of God and with the the thoughts and, and of God. But he's also sensitive and identifies with people. He, he feels the pull of those, and so there's people around him weeping that he cares about, and he weeps with those who are weeping. On the day that we commemorate as Palm Sunday, Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. It says he's going up into Jerusalem. Actually, he's coming from the north and traveling south. But when the Bible talks about going to Jerusalem, it always talks about going up because it's up a hill. So that's why he's traveling from the north to the south, but going up into Jerusalem, comes to the Mount of Olives, and as he comes down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley, and then up into the city, we find what happens. And what we'll find is there are going to be tears on his face again, and not just tears. He will be sobbing. Let's pick up, let me just, it's not in your worship folder, but let me just, Read the narrative, and it brings us up to our text, which is Luke 19. But let me uh, read before that. Jesus, When Jesus said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it, tell him, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And what we see is that that Jesus tells the disciples to get an animal for him. He enters, and he comes down the Mount of Olives into the Kidron Valley again, and he's a little bit away from the city by this time, but it's not just that people are throwing palm branches as he comes into the city. They're doing it on the road between the Mount of Olives and the city. There are people thronging out to greet this king who has just healed Lazarus and caused him to rise from the dead. Uh, they spread Palm branches on the ground before him, before he even gets to the city gates. And in the midst of their rejoicing, Jesus begins to sob. Now, our text, Luke 19, it's in your worship folder if you want to follow along. Luke 19:41 through 44, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had known, only known on this day, what would bring you peace? You find is that there's a word here of judgment. The term for tears, there's several different words for tears. One can be just tears coursing down your cheek, but there's a stronger word for weeping, sobbing, wailing. That's the word. That's the word. As Jesus comes down and he's coming toward the city, and again if you could it must it would have seemed kind of surreal. People celebrating and announcing and just cheering. And then all of a sudden, he, he is breaking down, sobbing. And, um, and we can get a glimpse into why. He says, if, if you only knew, but you do not. Peace has been hidden from the city's eyes. The opportunity has come and gone. They have turned their back on God's messenger. And Jesus predicts that Jerusalem will become the object of a fierce siege in the days that are coming. That word days that are coming is found in the Old Testament about 17 times. It's a climactic day. It's a a pivotal moment. It's not just the passing of time, but a juncture of time that's especially significant. Jesus said something's going to happen. And he goes on to describe what, and he says, what might have been a visitation for salvation is different. And now it's a visitation of judgment. He says, the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you on and hem you in on every side. Jesus is speaking about the attack that Rome will move against Jerusalem in A.D. 70. And he uses terminology that captures the destruction that will um, devastate the city. use um, uses siege terminology. The way that they did a siege, they would build an earth embankment, and in the case of Rome, they built a wall around the city. They built a wall so that no one can get in, no supplies could get in, and so as the Israelites are in the city and they see this wall going up. And they see the water supply. And they see the food supply. And then not only that, the enemy's pressing its attack against the city as they become weaker and weaker. The text goes on to describe other facets of this siege. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. The image there is of dead bodies. And so as Jesus comes up and as he sees into the future what he envisions are dead bodies strewn on the ground. And not that, but only one stone will not be left on another. And what he sees, the city will be leveled. There's bodies everywhere. Buildings. There's not one stone left on another. Um, The defeat is total. Nothing stands in fact, what the Romans did, they left a part of the wall and a section of the building. And the reason they did that, so that they could, so individuals who came by could see how a great city came to such a complete, total, utter devastation. Um, buildings were leveled. Romans' army, the Roman army, will leave the city for dead. You know, ironically, the nation's charge against Jesus is that he's a political threat to Rome. That's what they say. We've got to get rid of this guy because if he keeps on having the notoriety that he has, what the Romans are going to do, they're going to come in and sweep in and they're going to they're going to nail us. And the interesting thing is, um, in reality, Jesus is not their enemy. They would see him as being so, but he wasn't. In what happened, because of his rejection, the enemy can come. As they embrace him, they can't, but as they did, and then the, the enemy can't come. The city will experience judgment, while Jesus will be exalted and vindicated by God. And, but what we need to understand as part of the thing is we look at tears on Jesus' cheek, like the prophets of old, Jesus felt, finds no joy in rebuking sin and in talking about its dire consequences. In fact, we try to catch an image. He's much like a parent watching a child. Making a foolish decision. Your parents have been in places where you you know what your kids are doing, and you know what's going to happen. You also know that you can't make them do something different, and they're going to go in a direction. And so you, the grief that comes from caring about the one you know what's going to happen, and you and you'd like to step. But and so it it feels something like that. Jesus mourns a city sealing its fate, and he breaks down and sobs. The judgment he announces with his voice breaks his heart. Uh, When we think of what Jesus, what what would it have been like to be Jesus, to be God in human clothes? What we know, Jesus didn't see this in a way he was he wasn't playing video games, and he didn't dispatch drones. You know, there's something kind of Distant about that, but as Jesus announces judgment, he is emotionally involved in what, because he identifies both with his Father and with his people. He identifies both and he's pulled in half. He announces judgment on behalf of the Father because he loves the Father, but he loves the people. He loves the people. And he announces a judgment so terrible that, and that's where he just He can't take, he just breaks and he sobs and he wails because he identifies with both. Uh, Jesus is like Abraham in a way. These are his people. This is his city. And, And as Abraham gave up Isaac and Jesus understands that he's going to preside over the death of City that he cares for, and even as he announces judgment, though even as Abraham kind of figured something out, um, Jesus knows that mercy is waiting in the wings. Look what it says in Luke chapter thirteen, thirty-four and thirty-five. This is earlier, and Jesus is coming into the city. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house has left you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus wanted to gather the nation's capital under his wing. This is a picture of care and protection. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to care for them and nurture them and protect them. But instead they chose to go it alone, and in light of this choice, the nation will suffer. For time. For time. How much did Jesus know about the future? I'm not sure. What we do know about Jesus is that he trusted the Father, and what he knew, that God is inclusive, that God is merciful, And if he does and says what the Father tells him to do and say, it will result in good on the far side. And that's the thing. That's what it means to trust God. When you follow God, difficult things happen. And what it says in Hebrews 11, he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. We go through difficult junctures in our life. And we wonder if it's worth it. We ever wondered that. You see other other people making different choices, getting ahead? You wonder is it really worth it to try to follow him? We don't see the benefit of following him on this side. Sometimes good things happen to us, but what it means to follow Jesus apparently is that there will be things where we will follow. And experience things that Jesus followed. We will see people doing things that break our hearts. And we will not be able to fix them. We'd fix them if we could. But we're going to have to grieve. Like Jesus grieved. We'll see our kids. Those we are close to making decisions. And we could be mad at ourselves. Mad at them. You know what Jesus did? He grieved. Grief is a natural response to loss. Again, there's a process to grief. There's We kind of go through denial. It'll be okay, but it might not be okay. And anger. Lying, and Bargaining. We try to do something in such a way as to make things. And then there's depression and acceptance. And what Jesus does, he is a model for us. Sometimes things happen when you trust God. When you trust God, things happen that will make you cry. Happen to Jesus. Again, I think you'd agree with me. Jesus isn't sinning here, is he? Is this unbelief? The tears on his face? Shouldn't he trust God more? Sometimes we have the sense that if you're sad, that that's bad. Sad is bad. This is God in human clothes. And those are tears on his cheeks. Again, some of us, we hold our grief, and some of us hold our emotions on our sleeve. Some, as I've said, some put our emotions up our sleeve. And I'm not saying, you know, there's times that you, some of you are going to understand this. Some of us are. But what what I do want us to understand is that life is painful. And at times it's sad. And it's not unbiblical or unrighteous to be sad. I wonder if it would be unrighteous not to be. Things happen in this world. And when we come to the idea, well, couldn't God have prevented it? What Jesus understood is that even though there were things that would happen that would be difficult, at some point he understood, that I don't know how much he knew specifically, that on the far side of those things, there's mercy. Um, Jesus rose. Again, what he said is what happened. had ended up happening some years later. But what he what he did, Jesus rose, and then he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to Paul. Paul wrote a letter in the spring of fifty seven, A.D. to Christians in Rome, uh, and this is what he says. Look what it says in Romans eleven. Verses 25 through 32. Romans 11. And as Paul explains, um, what we see is judgment. This is the way it is with God. There's mercy on the far side. Again, let me read. Israel, Paul explains, has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies on your account. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. For God's gift and his call are irrevocable. God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. You know what? Jesus lets Paul know about that Jerusalem's destruction was purposed. It was planned. Again, I'm going to read that again. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. God's life is resurrection life. And again, this is the way God is. That if there's life there's been death on this side of life. Now, when God extends the hope of eternal life to Gentiles, and he does extend that, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And when God offers life, there is a death on this side of that, and that's why Jesus died. So we can open up the the door of eternal life to Gentiles, but this is also why Jerusalem died. In that sense, then Jesus is a suffering servant, but so is the city. But out of the ashes, dead bodies on the ground, not one stone left on another, a hope springs up. And out of that devastation, what God extends to Gentiles, individuals who weren't on the mountain, who were excluded from the hope given to Israel, They die, and out of their grave, God extends an olive branch to you. Now, for Gentiles, we didn't have much of God's ear before Christ comes. But that's what God does. He leads his children into places where they sacrifice themselves so that others could have life, and so now it's our time. And as we've explained before, this is what God seems to be doing at this point. You're Gentiles, you're Jews. And God is waving Gentiles in. Come in, come in, come in, come in. This has been for the last 2,000 years. What's going to happen at some point? I say stop. And He's going to turn back to you, to the Jews. Come on. And they're going to. I walked toward them and they said, I thought we were done. Our city was devastated and it was destroyed. You know what they're going to find? That with God there's always mercy on the far side of judgment. With God there's always mercy on the far side of judgment. There's always mercy on the far side of judgment. That's why Travis says what he says. Why hope exists. It's always mercy on the far side of judgment with God. God's call is irrevocable. God doesn't change his mind. Again, he didn't, and we see this, with Jesus, this is what I want you to know. They were devastated, the city was razed, but God's purposes for Israel didn't end. He understood what was going to happen. God doesn't change his mind. On the far side of opening the door to Gentiles, God would open the door to Jews. God has bound all men over to disobedience that he may have mercy on them all. I want you to look at that again. God has bound all men over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Now, what I want you to know, this is God's modus operandi. This is how God works. It doesn't say some men. God has bound all men over to disobedience the sense that they're excluded so that he can have mercy on them all. What does that mean? Let me tell you what bound over means. It means to net or snare. So if you, if you went fishing in those days, what you'd do is you'd take this net and you'd throw it into the water and it would be a circle and it would come and it was weighted so then it would start to sink. And if you were on a boat then what you would do is you would pull it in. As you pulled it in, it closes up and then you snare fish in it, and the fish can't get out. And so what it says is this is what God does. God snares all men in disobedience. They snare everyone in the sense that I am not in a place where I'm going to connect with God. I just don't say it well enough. I don't do it well enough. And What God does, he puts everyone in that position. Why would he do that? So that when you, and if you, experience God's hand coming out to reach, it's not because of your merit. It's not because you've read the Bible enough, or you've prayed enough, or you've given enough, or you've fasted enough. What God wants you to know is when he extends his hand to you, it's not about your obedience. It's about his mercy. And he gives all of us the sense that I don't deserve to be pulled into eternal existence. God says, that's exactly where I wanted you to be. You think you deserve eternal existence? Really? Somebody who thinks the way you think? Somebody who struggles with what you struggle with? All of us have a sense at some point, we develop a sense, some of us as we remain in the good news, we, we start to understand his love, but at one point, especially in the beginning, it's hard to think that God would want to connect with me. You know why he does that? So when he connects with you, you'll understand this is about his mercy, not my merit. And that's what God does. That's what God does. Uh James states it succinctly. There's judgment and there's mercy. You know what James said about judgment and mercy? Which one of those is stronger? Judgment, mercy. Judgment, mercy. You know what it says in James? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Because uh, that's where God leads. And Jesus understood that. Paul understood that. And if that's one thing to you know about God, that at the end of Difficult things is always mercy. The road leads to mercy. Of um, the cross can be kind of confusing. It's it's a place where we tend to see judgment and mercy. We'll hear a lot of it this week. Good Friday messages, and Easter messages. Um,
1: wrote an article.
0: I'm going to read it. I should read along. I do so because there are some, there's some truths that I think are important. Uh, is God bloodthirsty? Imagine God frowning. Now imagine Him smiling. A sacrifice of atonement is the reason for the change. It is the means by which... God's favor is restored. That's what a sacrifice of atonement is. It's the mean by which God becomes hyalious, gracious, favorable, benevolent. That's what a sacrifice of atonement is. It's the means by which God becomes gracious, benevolent, favorable. God presented him, it says in Romans 3.25, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time, so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Jesus' mission on this planet was to function as a sacrifice of atonement. Because of what what he accomplished, God the Father smiles. His favor is restored. If you know anything about sacrifices, this might raise some disturbing questions about God the Father. Animals used as sacrifices were slaughtered. Are we to conclude that God looks at an animal bleeding to death and then smiles? This question becomes even more disturbing when we plug Jesus Christ into the equation when he becomes a sacrifice of atonement, did God the Father watch his son die in order to exhaust his wrath against sin? Did God the Father punish sin by punishing Jesus? We read about God's forbearance in the passage. Forbearance means self-restraint. It is the opposite of God blowing his top someone who demonstrates forbearance, contain anger and wrath. The cross is not a place where God's anger and wrath were unleashed. The cross is a demonstration of God's forbearance, a place where God's anger and wrath were restrained. We read that God had left the sins committed beforehand Unpunished. This translation, the New International Version, suggests that God saved up the wrath that had been building because of prior human sin and poured it onto Christ. However, another more accurate translation, by the way, in this respect, New American Standard offers this translation. In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. I'm going to read both of those Both of those passages, and you tell me if you can sense a difference between them, okay? I'm going to read both of them. The NIV and then the NASB. Now, you listen and see if you get very different pictures, okay? Here's the NIV. God had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. What does that suggest that happened at the cross? Yeah, now's the time to let her rip. And this is what the NASB says. In the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. In the, in the forbearance of God, he passed over the sins previously committed. Do you get the difference in those statements? Do you hear it? Which one's accurate? Okay. The second one is... And it's a different, completely different picture. It suggests that God passed over sins on the cross. It suggests that God demonstrated self-restraint at the cross. It suggests that the cross is a place where sin went unpunished. This image fits in better with Judaism, the religion from which Christianity was birthed. In the Old Testament, God declared the life of a creature is in the blood. And I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. When we see blood, we think of death. God sees life. God gave the blood in order to give life. God did not vent his wrath on the animal that was sacrificed. The life of the animal was not taken in anger. The life of the animal was given in love. The Day of Atonement is the most... Sacred Day in the Jewish calendar. On the Day of Atonement, the most important sacrifice of atonement was offered. Two goats were used. The second was called the scapegoat. The high priest was instructed to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins, to a solitary place and the man shall release it in the desert. The sins of the people were transferred to the scapegoat. The scapegoat was released. It was not killed. It was not punished. The scapegoat walked away unharmed. God's favor was restored. God demonstrated the same forbearance on the day Jesus died. But what about the savage beating he took? What about the agonizing ordeal on the cross? What about his death? He certainly didn't walk away from the cross unharmed. God the Father did not punish Jesus on the cross. God the Father did not punish Jesus on the cross. Sinful men did. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not go weary and lose heart. Jesus is our scapegoat. His blood is not to be understood as life taken in anger. His blood is to be understood as life given in love. And that's the worship team to come up again. Um, cross is a very complex thing. What we find is with God, judgment and mercy are always in balance. But what we find as well, mercy triumphs over judgment. That's what we know from God and the cross. That you accomplish in sending your son. Uh, pray that we would understand your love and the cross, and what it means. Uh, thank you that your desire is to create an eternal relationship with us uh, to that extent to remove from us the fear of judgment. Because again, love is can't grow up in the, in the field of judgment. Can. Uh, there's no fear in love. Perfect love drives out fear. I guess that's what I'm asking. Would you help us to understand your love? Drives away our fears so that we can live this life not for ourselves, but in service to others. Pouring out our lives for them, to them, like your son did. In Jesus' name, amen.